0: Hello, I'm Garni Barkadarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world visit cns.org membership podcast today welcome everyone to the cns journal club podcast and thank you so much for joining us today my name is kimberly huang and i'm from the department of neurosurgery at emory university in atlanta georgia my practice focuses on tumors and it is my honor today to moderate the discussion of a very interesting article in the newest edition of the red journal Hot off the presses, entitled Onyx versus Particles for MMA or Middle Meningeal Artery Embolization in Chronic Subdural Hematoma. Uh, I personally think this is a very timely article that many in our audience will be interested in. Today, we welcome Dr. Jabor, the senior author, Dr. Toski, our guest expert, and Dr. Suarez, our resident co-host for the discussion. Dr. Jabor, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please?
1: Hi, uh, I'm Pascal Jabour. I'm uh, the head of the Neurovascular Division at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I do open and endovascular surgery. Um, just, I do just vascular.
0: Wonderful. And Dr. Towski, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: I'm Phil Towski. I'm uh, working at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. My practice is very similar to Dr. Jabour's. I do open vascular and endovascular neurosurgery.
0: Wonderful. And last but not least, Dr. Suarez, could you tell us a little bit about you?
3: Hey, everyone. I'm one of the PGY-5 uh, residents over here at Duke University with an interest in vascular and peripheral nerve. So really excited to, um, to be part of the podcast today.
0: Wonderful. Okay, Dr. Jabbour, can you give the audience a little bit of a brief review of the article, the findings, and key conclusions to get us up to speed.
1: Yes, uh, well, uh, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure and honor uh, to be with you. Uh, This was a retrospective uh, review of uh, uh, cases of uh, chronic subdural hematoma that were treated with uh, middle meningeal artery embolization. Um, It was uh, 49 cases treated with onyx embolization and 48 cases treated with particles uh primary the primary outcomes were uh failure of the uh, treatment which was defined as increase in the size of the subdural hematoma on cat scan um, or needing uh, a rescue surgery for to evacuate uh, subdural hematoma that's symptomatic secondary outcomes were uh, uh, size of the subdural hematoma uh, on a cat scan early on to to 8 weeks a late uh, thickness of the subdural hematoma, which is the most recent CAT scan that we have. Uh, uh, also looking at midline shift and a late the, most, the latest uh, modified Rankin scale uh, that we have on the patients. So uh, those patients had to have uh, definitely chronic subdural hematoma, but there may be some subacute and some acute component in it, but it has to be all uh, chronic, uh, for sure. Uh, the, the, the way, as I said, it's a re- retrospective review, so it, there was no randomization for the uh, particles or onyx. It was just kept uh, to the discretion of the operator. Uh, and uh, we looked at the results, the primary outcomes, uh, failure of the treatment, which is... Uh, Increase in the size of the of the subdural hematoma on CAT scan. We had twenty five percent of patients treated with particles uh, had failure, and twelve point two percent of patients treated with Onyx, but this was not statistically significant. Uh, patients uh, reading, needing rescue surgery: sixteen point seven percent of those patients had uh, rescue surgery from the from the patients that were treated with particles. Uh, as opposed to 10.2% of patients treated with onyx, also still non-statistically significant. Uh, At the end, the most recent uh, thickness of the subdural hematoma, the subdural hematoma was thicker in the patients treated with onyx as compared to uh, particles, uh, but this did not uh, translate into a difference in a clinical difference. So, Uh, There was no difference in the midline shift. There's no difference in modified uh, Rankin scale. And at the end, the conclusion was those are both uh, two acceptable options to treat subdural hematomas. Uh, Yeah, the profile was a little bit favoring Onyx, but non-statistically significant. I think there was a paper, I think that Phil was part of it, uh, that showed the you know, similar, like maybe the profile was a little bit more toward the onyx, but not statistically significant.
0: Great synopsis. Uh, Dr. Toski, you want to start the questions off for
2: us? Yeah, uh, congratulations. First of all, Dr. Jabour for this paper. I think um, as we see MMA embolizations become really part of mainstay neurosurgery, and I think that's happening all across centres in you know worldwide. There's more nuanced questions that come up, and I think, of course, the biggest question is which agent to use. And we have different agents, and each agent has somewhat advantages and disadvantages. And um, I wondered if you could give us you know a generalized overview on your personal take uh, of the different agents and what you see are advantages and disadvantages.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So uh, let's talk about onyx first. So onyx, uh, you know, is really widely used for embolization for AVM embolization dural AV fistulas and, you know, things like that. Onyx, uh, especially in older population with may, small MMA, has a, a better distal penetration than uh, than particles. Uh, onyx is more opacified uh, than particles. As you know, particles, you need to add contrast to them. Uh, this is why I think with onyx, you are able to see if there's any, uh, any reflux. Um, and as you know, with the MMA embolization, there are some dangerous anastomosis that we need to look for. So I think with onyx, uh, you are able to see the, the reflux real well because of the opacification. We know also that onyx uh, doesn't resorb and we know that particles after a certain time they can resorb and uh, disappear. This is why when I was trained long time ago, uh, I, I, I remember uh, that when we, they would send any tumor embolization for us when we didn't have onyx at that time, this says that uh, how old I am. <laughs> so I, I remember that uh, Dr. Rosenwasser, who, who trained me, w- used to ask the surgeon, uh, you need to, um, you need when are you resecting to determine when we're gonna do the embolization because we cannot do the embolization way in advance of resection uh, because uh, p- particles can recanalize. And that's why we would uh, do this. As, as you know, with the, with the next generation liquid embolic, it doesn't matter, you can embolize and they can operate whenever they want. The other thing with uh, with Onyx uh, is, uh, as you know, DMSO is painful. So if you like to do those procedures awake, that's not a good option for Onyx. It's better to do them under general anesthesia so the patient won't feel the pain. I know that my partner, uh, uh, you know, staff, she she does uh, uh, lidocaine. She injects lidocaine first, uh, and it seems that the patient do well with that. But my particular experience. My personal experience, I mean, I'd rather them be under general anesthesia because even with lidocaine, the patients are still moving and feeling uh, some things. And and last, uh, as you know, nowadays, you know, the hospital administrators will always ask you about money and economics. So uh, as you know, particles are, are not expensive at all as compared to onyx, which is uh, more expensive. So this is mainly the difference if, if we want to talk about the two, uh, the, the two uh, agents.
2: And um, thanks for that overview. I think that that's, these are the, the salient points in that respect. I wondered if you could talk a little bit, and there's many MMA embolization trials going on. You came up with a very clever, I feel, primary endpoint. Um, which is essentially, you know, fa- failure of embolization, and which is sort of a broad category, right, of, of uh, a progression of a recurrence and so on, crossover. Um, but maybe you can talk a little bit about your insights, what you think would be for a randomized controlled trial going forward, what do you think would be a reasonable endpoint? Because I think a lot of the current studies struggle with defining clear endpoints in a disease that, first of all, has has in general a high recurrence rate, a high crossover rate, somewhat benign natural history in the sense that some hematomas go away with, with medical therapy. So if you had to design a similar study, randomized control trial prospectively, what do you think would be a good primary endpoint?
1: Yeah, that's a great uh, question. Absolutely. And I always say about the subdural hematomas that, you know, it's, it's really tough to show a difference in a disease that's so benign and that usually resolve on its own, right? I mean, uh, I mean, before MMA EMBO, how many times we had patients that we would watch with subdural hematomas and the majority of them will, will get resorbed and, and, you know, and they are gone. But at the same time, every now and then we have this frequent flyer patient that keeps on coming, that no matter what you do, they keep on having uh, recurrences and uh, things like that. So yes, there are major trials now going on. We are part of one of them, the STEM trial, so the stem trial, uh, they are looking at squid uh, for, for uh, subdural hematomas. There's embolize trial which they are looking at onyx. There's another trial looking at trufil, which is NBCA, and there are also couple of two other couple of trials. But uh, when I looked them up on on uh, trials.gov, they weren't really clear about what, what they are looking at. Uh, but but those the, the main three trials. Uh, you know, like in STEM, uh, they, they, they are dividing it into two. First, you decide, is this a surgical case or not? If it's not a surgical case, at that time, they randomize it between not don't do anything or uh, embolize. If it's a surgical case, they would randomize it between uh, surgery alone or uh, embolization, then uh, surgery. I think we really should be, uh, we should, know what we're looking at and we shouldn't uh, be comparing apples to oranges. Uh, I I think there are two things here uh, and we shouldn't confuse ourselves. We need to know if this treatment is really like like it's making a difference, yes or no, in just subdural hematomas. And I think being able to randomize between no treatment and embolization is very important and looking at, at that just by itself. And then defining I think failure uh, uh, should be even residual I think I think we shouldn't give ourselves like an easy target or say the failure is if there's only increase of, of the size of the hematoma like like we did in our retrospective review I think failure also is like if the hematoma stays the same and it doesn't go away and it doesn't right if we think that the Uh, uh, embolizing the middle meningeal artery is cutting the blood flow uh, to the dura and it's interrupting this uh, inflammatory uh, uh, process that's happening, it means the subdural hematoma should decrease in size. It shouldn't stay the the same. So I think it's uh, uh, defining it as at least decreasing in size and uh, failure should be also if it stays the same and didn't change, or if it increased uh, in size, or any later on crossover to surgery. Now with surgery, it's a little bit more tricky, right? With surgery, when you decide to do surgery alone or surgery with, uh, with embolization, as we know, embolization should be done first because you, uh, in surgery, you're going to interrupt anatomically the middle meningeal artery, I think this is a more complex uh issue to, to to look at because we have so many variables that enter the equation uh but i think mainly focusing on just to see if on imaging it's making a difference by randomizing between nothing and embolization and and and, and see the regression
2: excellent no i think i think these are all very very good points and i think it's good to have thought leaders like yourself, Pascal, to you know formulate these thoughts and bring them together. Because I think, for sure, that's where the field is going to go, and these are the questions that we need to answer going forward. If I can just ask one last question, and then maybe the others can chime in. Um, talk to us a little bit about the pathophysiology, or you know, why do why does MNA, M, MMA embolization work so well, right? We, we have this sort of simplistic view that no one really knows where it comes from, that, you know, a breaching vein tears and then it sort of oozes and then you have this inflammatory response. None of this understanding of the pathophysiology or the etiology of chronic subdural hematomas Really explain well why an MMA embolization would actually work so well, but it works really exceedingly well in many surprising instances and, and sometimes even more rapidly than surgery. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your understanding of the, of, of the mechanism of MMA embolizations and why it's such an attractive surgery in many ways
1: yeah absolutely we used to, we used to think that subdural hematomas were as simple as that that it's uh, you know uh, old patients with brain atrophy bridging veins Tear in the vein, bleeding, and and that's it. But the problem is much more complex than that. And there are a lot of studies on pathophysiology of subdural hematoma that showed us, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that that we didn't know, and a lot of uh, variables that are included in the uh, equation. So uh, so so whenever there's any any bleeding in the, in the subdural space, there's some kind of uh, uh, inflammation that's caused by this bleeding and. Uh, uh, you know, there's the fibroblast, the granulation tissue starts forming. Angiogenic factors are involved, and then this all—all all this interacting together will form a neomembrane, And within, I would say, uh, three to four weeks of the primary injury, there's a neomembrane that forms. And we always have, we we've all have seen it when we're going to do a subdural hematoma, especially if we're doing a craniotomy. Uh, uh see this two membranes one stuck on the cortex and another one and then this meio membrane this neo membrane uh, starts leaking later on and uh, and then starts uh, by osmosis uh, get, getting and sucking out uh, more fluid uh, into this collection and uh, and it becomes like a like a vicious circle and uh, this we need something to break this uh, break this uh, uh, the circle and shift the balance uh, of uh, uh, or the imbalance between leakage and reabsorption. This is why the idea uh, came and uh, as you know there are papers as early as the early 2000s, late 1990s from Japan uh, you know t- talking about this that if you cause an ischemia to the to the dura, uh, this ischemia can 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 break this uh, cycle and then uh, hopefully uh, it will break the, uh, you know, the recruitment and uh, of new fluid, and then the old fluid will get reabsorbed slowly. So it's not like the embolization is absorbing the fluid, it's just it's breaking this, the ischemia is breaking this uh, inflammatory process and there's no, no new secretions of fluid happening and whatever you have there will get reabsorbed slowly without anything new that that's coming. Again, I'm not pretending of, of knowing uh, all that. I'm not sure, but I think those are the theories. If you read papers, this is what th- they talk about mainly.
2: Excellent, yeah.
3: Uh, thanks for sharing your insights on the pathophysiology there. Um, you know, I think as Dr. Towski and you mentioned, like the literature that's coming out has been very, very exciting and more and more neurointerventionalists are getting involved. Um, and it's starting to beg the question related to indicators um and which patient population of chronic subdurals um, are, are being intervened on. So can you just share what your institutional experience is on uh, what patients you're offering this to? Do you see it as both a primary treatment for people who don't necessarily need surgery or also as an adjunctive treatment to people who've maybe gotten burr holes to pr- try to prevent recurrence?
1: Great question. So we should... Uh... Be aware here and not fall in the trap of, you know, when pipeline came in, when flow diversion. let's say flow diversion, we're not uh, making any, any, let's say flow diversion, not, not name specific devices. When, when flow diversion came, you can't see, like everyone started treating like cavernous aneurysms, right? I mean, you wouldn't see any more untreated cavernous aneurysms. Those aneurysms, we never used to treat them, right? You don't have to treat a cavernous aneurysm if it's not symptomatic, if it's not causing uh, any issues. But, and I'm talking because I I, I used to go proctor and uh, this is one of the reasons why I stopped proctoring and I'm sure, Phil, the same, you, you used to proctor. When you proctor, you don't have a say in the indication. You go there and then you see a case <laughs> and, you, and you would see all those cavernous aneurysms being treated. So I don't think we should do the same, not because we have something that's minimally invasive, Knowing that, yeah, it is minimally invasive, but be careful, right? I mean, we're going embolizing something we didn't use to embolize, and you're going to start every now and then seeing a, a, a facial droop. You're going to every now and then having a, a, a you know, monocular blindness or something. So it's not as, as benign as we think or as minimally invasive as we think, because the definition of minimally invasive is not just avoiding a cut. Uh, you know, you can be minimally invasive, but you can cause a lot of harm. So again, so the reason I did, I did this introduction is like w- we shouldn't start like treating right and left every subdural hematoma that we, we are seeing, the, the usual cases when we would watch usually. So our indication at this point. So first, if you're not in, if you're enrolling in a trial, fine, you're going to look at the inclusion criteria of the trial and enroll. Patients that are not enrolled in the trial, the subdural hematoma needs to have an indication. And as we know, some indications are not like urgent or, or, or you know, like if someone needs to go to the OR, yes, the patient needs to go to the OR. We don't think embolization anymore. You, the, uh, you would take the patient and do the right thing. But there are some indications where the hematoma is symptomatic, but not to the point where the patient needs to go to the OR right away. So if I have a patient coming with a, uh, Large, let's say more than one centimeter, the patient has a lot of headaches, has been complaining of headaches, the family is saying, well, I think the patient has been for the last two months, not himself or herself, and, uh, you know, things non-specific." yeah, there is an indication to treat here and, and we should treat. I think uh, size by itself, even if it's asymptomatic, is an indication. If I have something more than like one 1.5 centimeter on an asymptomatic patient without a lot of brain atrophy, yeah, this is an indication. So so I think there should be a reason to treat. Now, talking about being an adjunct, uh, this is also, I think we should, we should wait for the literature. We should wait for the trial. I mean, we should wait for the trials and see, because uh, as we know, I mean, we do, uh, we, we do a lot of burr hole for subdural hematomas and the recurrence rate varies. If you look at the literature between 10 to 25, 30%, I think an average, uh, I can say like 15 to 20% is a good thing, but not every recurrence needs a, a procedure. So many times we have a recurrence, but we co- keep on watching the patient. So I think in those cases, the claiming that it's a great adjunct and it should be an adjunct to every open case, I think no one can uh, say this at this point, and it's really important to wait for the result of the trials to be able to make uh, uh, the, the opinion. As I said earlier, still with surgery, I'm still not sure how we're going to be able to prove this. But uh, for the non-surgical cases that are symptomatic, I think we should be able to 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 prove that in uh, in in a straightforward trial.
3: Awesome. Um- and that kind of leads into uh, my next question. And one of the reasons why we chose the paper is that I think there are takeaways for multiple different audiences. So I think there is um, you know, the neurointerventionalists who are listening to this podcast. And then there's also the general neurosurgeon who's gonna see the chronics of and think about referring them to a, a neurointerventionist. Can you just touch on what your hopes are from the paper um, for these two distinct audiences um, as they as they walk away from this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for the neurosurgeons doing only open surgery, uh, this is a little bit telling them that, yeah, there is another option. Now, uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure if this is something where the neurosurgeons will be happy. It's like, hey, guys, great, you have this treatment because we're fed up doing subdural hematomas, which we're seeing it a lot in uh, uh, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, right? No one wants to shunt uh, uh, those patients. And when this came up about sinus stenting, everyone's like, oh, great. I'm going to send you all the patients. We don't want to shed those patients anymore. So I think that uh, the neurosurgeons now know that there are other options. And actually, my colleagues here and trauma colleagues they have been sending me everybody. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of times I say, well, in those cases, there's no indication. Would you take? Would you think this needs to be treated? No. So it's the same. It's the same with embolization. So we need to establish an indication first that it needs to be treated, and then we'll be happy to do it. Uh, for, for the neurointerventionalist, I think this is uh, something exciting that uh, there is a new indication for uh, for uh, that opens the horizon. And uh, for what type of agent to use? You know, I mean, it, a lot of times, as you know, for example, we do coiling. Like uh, a lot of all the calls are like similar. You know, it's, it depends what you're used to. It depends what you feel comfortable with. Same with the with the agent, right? If you're trained with 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 uh, particles, you're gonna keep on using particles. If you're trained with onyx, you're gonna feel more comfortable doing onyx, which is great. I'm not saying it's wrong. At least now, uh, I mean, you, also the neurointervention knows that. Yeah, there's no right or wrong if you you're trained with with particles you like particles yeah particles work fine in, in, in this case if you like onyx onyx work fine so i think this is uh, this is just uh, to say that that's no it's not one way of doing things and multiple ways but like everything in medicine not just in neurosurgery know how to pick your patients and know your indications and don't don't abuse that's all
0: I think this discussion from Alex's question leads really nicely into my question, which is, you know we as a center, and I'm sure you guys are um, experiencing it as well too, um, are getting increasing number of requests for transfers for subdural patients, all kinds of subdurals, subacute, acute on chronic, chronic, the whole thing. and from physicians who I think it's because there's a confusion about the indications of the procedure. Um, frankly, um, to get upfront evaluated for both treatments, MMA and um, embolization and open treatment. And so, I just wanted to kind of um, start the discussion a little bit about, you know, is this the new face of subdural treatment? Are these patients, inpatient or outpatient, need to be seen by a centers that need to have both capabilities? Because I think that would really shift our uses of resources, resource utilization, and how we manage these things. And that's just something that I think is a field we need to think about a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then, really, to referring doctors or doctors in facilities where they don't have endovascular, we should always remind them that this is not a panacea, that if you think that this patient needs to go to the OR, just take the patient to the OR. Like, we shouldn't have delays in treatment just to transfer the patient because uh, middle meningeal artery embolization is not available at this hospital. I think that those indications should be still clear that a patient that meets criteria for open surgery still still needs to go for open surgery. Now, if they if they want to transfer patients uh, where the patient doesn't really need to go to the OR, at that time, uh, yeah, uh, they should transfer them to uh, pa- places where endovascular capabilities are available uh, uh, because uh, those are good patients to benefit from, from this treatment. And I think... Uh, trying to screen those patients while they're out there, out in a referring hospital may be, may be difficult. So this may stress a little bit the health system about uh, transfers, and sometimes you're going to have some transfers that are not, uh, you know, uh, that are not needed. But then, uh, you know, I think like in any new technique, there are going to be some, some cases that will be transferred, and then it's up to the endovascular surgeon to look at them and then either discharge them and let them follow up with them as an outpatient or go ahead and do the embolization but like in any every other technique they're going to be an overutilization for a little bit then it's going to plateau down then we're going to have good indication and then everyone would know exactly what would be the indication to avoid unnecessary transfers between hospitals and things like that but the most important part here I think is please don't wait on a a patient with anisocoria because saying, claiming that we don't have endovascular capabilities here. This patient always needed to go to the OR and will always need to go to the OR regardless what the trials will show.
0: Excellent. Excellent. I think that's potentially helpful for some folks to better understand. Um, Well, we are uh, nearing the end of our time. I would like to thank our excellent panel and guests for our really stimulating discussion. I learned a lot. And of course, thank you to our loyal listeners for continuing to support us. We hope you learned something new today to help in your practice. And remember that you can obtain 1.5 CME, which is complimentary to all CNS members. The link to the CME activity is available in the online education catalog at cns.org. Let's see you all next month.